to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you're listening to this show, you already know how the natural environment affected the course of the Civil War. You know about Burnside's Mud March or McClellan on the Peninsula. But do you know what was different about the mud of Virginia? You know about Fort Henry falling victim to the flood waters of the Tennessee River. But do you know why it rained so much in the spring of 1862? You know the more men died of disease than from battle. But do you know why typhoid was common in military camps, but cholera wasn't? These are a few of the many things I now know from the fascinating new book, An Environmental History of the Civil War, co-written by military historian Judkin Browning and environmental historian Timothy Silver. We'll talk with Professor Silver tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio Social Distancing Center in Greenville, North Carolina. Not from my office in the Brewster Building. There's nobody in the Brewster Building. There's nobody on campus, practically speaking, at East Carolina University. But even if there were, I would not be speaking for ECU or anybody else, just myself. And I know my guest likewise speaks only for himself, not his campus, not the UNC system, not anybody. Well, the big news, as has been the case for the last several weeks here in April of 2020, Uh, tonight is April 8th, is still the coronavirus pandemic. It has closed the university for face-to-face classes. But here at uh, World Headquarters of Civil War Talk Radio, the big adventure this past week has been a a different health issue. Uh, Not me, but uh, Mrs. Civil War Talk Radio. My wife, Emily, suffered an attack of appendicitis one week ago today. In fact, she was just feeling bad as we were going through last week's show. 
And by Thursday morning, it was clear we needed to get to the emergency room, even though the hospital is the last place you want to be going during an epidemic. There was no alternative. Uh, So we went. Uh, She had it quickly diagnosed, had surgery on Friday, and was able to return home Monday of this past week, where she's been recovering. I have been doing my best to wait on her hand and foot. It is the least she deserves after many years of putting up with me. But uh, it, it's tough. And it was uh, the stress of having this happen during a public health crisis certainly did not make it easier. The entire time she was in the hospital, I did not see her. I was not allowed in. No visitors were allowed into uh, Vidant Hospital. That's East Carolina University's teaching hospital here in Greenville. So uh, she had to go it alone, and she was definitely uh, a a trooper about it and is home and recovering now, and uh, hopefully will be back to 100% uh, not too long from now. The other thing going on, uh, until last week, she was teaching online her high school classes, just as I was teaching my ECU classes, and I will say this. Let me preface this by saying how grateful I am to have a job that I can continue to do from home. Uh, My sympathies are with you wherever you are. If you are not fortunate enough to still be working because of the economic dislocations of the pandemic, or worse still, if you're ill, and I I hope that's not true of any of our listeners, but realistically, I, I imagine that can't be the case. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy that I'm still working. Uh, having said that, the, there is an illusion, certainly among legislators, if no one else, that somehow teaching online is much easier than teaching in person. That You just sit in front of a computer and don't even have to wear pants and, and magically communicate with thousands of students at once. Uh, my experience in these last two weeks is that this is the most time-consuming and uh, challenging teaching I have ever done. And I have taught online before, but converting in the middle of a semester, simultaneously we're changing our, our learning system from Blackboard to Canvas. And if you know either of those, you will sympathize. Uh, and we're dealing with a student population that didn't sign up for online learning, so they're not prepared for it either. It is extraordinarily time-consuming to record lectures and to communicate with students by email and other methods. Uh, In some ways, a little bit rewarding, but I, I do say I miss being in the classroom and seeing the students, and especially today, we had our first uh, master's student conduct a defense of his thesis. It was a, uh, I would say, an outstanding thesis. You'll, you may be reading this guy's work. He may be on the show in five years uh, when he continues on to PhD studies. It was about how the North Carolinians in Hyde County were divided. Half of them, well, a portion of them joined the Confederate forces. A portion stayed loyal to the Union. Uh, the ones who were on the mainland were Confederates. The ones who were on uh, the Outer Banks Islands, also part of Hyde County, just 20 miles away, but they were overwhelmingly loyal to the Union. And he did a wonderful analysis of this. And uh, But we had to do it all online. Couldn't shake his hand afterward. Uh, it's a different world we're in. Well, this is affecting a lot in the Civil War world as well. Uh, Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College 
last I heard, they are planning to reevaluate in a couple weeks and see if they're going to go ahead in June. But I have to admit, I don't see how, how that can happen, but we'll see. Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, May tours are off, but we're looking ahead now to October, October 9 to 17, this hallowed ground. Sign up for it. I'll be leading it. I look forward to seeing you on the battlefields. I saw another note just crossed the email uh, yesterday. The Association of Licensed Battlefield Guides at Gettysburg has moved their spring seminar to the to be a fall seminar, October 23rd and 24th. And the topic is overlooked and not often visited, ridges, farms, and other battle sites. So if you want to talk to the people who really know that place and see some places no one gets to see, see uh, look for the website, ALBG. And if you don't go there, stay here at Civil War Talk Radio. We have great shows coming up in the next month. Next week, Heather Cox Richardson with her new book, How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. On the 22nd, Evan Cutzler will be our guest. His book is called Living by Inches, The Smells, Sounds, Tastes, and Feeling of Captivity in Civil War Prisons. So if you feel being quarantined or locked down is bad, I think this will give us that feeling. It could have been a lot worse. And on the 29th of the month, rounding it out, Bert Dunkerley will talk to us about the surrenders of the Confederacy at Appomattox and Bennett Place. He's written a book called To the Bitter End. There won't be a live show on May 6th. That is final exam week. And even online, it's still final exam week. I'll be grading, uh, so no live show. But we'll be back after that. I'll tell you more next week. Well, let's talk to our guest tonight. Timothy Silver is the co-author with Judkin Browning of An Environmental History of the Civil War. They are professors at Appalachian State University. And Dr. Silver joins us this evening. Dr. Silver, are you there? I'm here, and you can call me Tim, please. <laughs> Thank you. Please, please call me Jerry. It uh, saves a lot of time for both okay. of us. So, Tim, how are you guys doing at App State with uh, the crisis? Well, uh, we're, of course, uh, where you are um, with it. Uh, we've been teaching online since spring break. Our students left, uh, and I think it might have been around uh, March the 7th or 8th, somewhere along there. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, we haven't been back. And as a matter of fact, I just finished up a graduate seminar online uh, tonight, right before I, I called you. So we've been, we've been in the same kind of predicament. It's everywhere, and uh, you know, uh, I've taught a little bit online in the past, or done some hybrid courses, and so I think maybe I was a little bit better prepared than some people. But it's a completely different thing. I mean, it's it's just you know, it's a, a complete sort of readjustment, realigning your courses, and then you know, getting familiar with the technology, and then hoping it doesn't all go down in the middle of your class. <laughs> So on and so forth. So um, I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, this is like nothing any of us have ever experienced. It's really, really something. Um, this book is also like nothing uh, many of us have experienced. It is the product of a collaboration uh, with you and, and Judkin Browning. He was, he's been on the show to talk about his work on uh, the war in eastern North Carolina. 
I'm curious about how this worked out. Uh, was this your idea, his idea? How did you guys get together to do this? Uh, well, I think maybe the, the original idea was was mine. Um, and I'm not trying to claim undue credit, but um, <laughs> I had been kicking around the idea of an environmental history of the Civil War uh, for a while. I um, wrote a book a while back on Mount Mitchell and the Black Mountains, and uh, during that I came across um, a lot of interesting information from Yancey County, uh, and particularly during the Civil War, about how many uh, men had gone off to war and how that affected agriculture and so forth in the region. So I've been sort of in the back of my mind thinking, wow, you know, the Civil War is really ripe for, for an environmental history. Um, and so I sort of played with it for a while. Uh, in around 2008 or nine. I was still messing with it. And um, I was just completely overwhelmed by the Civil War literature. You know what? There are like fifty-five thousand books <laughs> on the Civil War, and yes. um, I just uh, I, in this lifetime there was no way I was going to ever get a handle on that literature. Um, so I happened to be reading a, an article in a uh, in a, a a botany magazine or a botany journal of all things, and I noticed that the guy who did the article. They called in a geneticist to help him out. So, you know, all of a sudden something went off in my head, and I said, you know, why don't I just enlist a Civil War historian? And, um, you know, I had a good one right down the hall. So I had broached the idea to Judkin, and then, of course, he came on, and, and you know, it became a, a project on which we collaborated. So you had a, some awareness of, of Civil War history. You, was this... I often ask guests when they first got interested, often it's a childhood thing. It, is the Civil War a topic you read much about outside of your professional work? No, no, absolutely not. In fact, I'm an, I'm an interloper in your field. <laughs> um, I, uh, I had not uh, done hardly any work on the Civil War. I, mean, I trained as a colonial historian first and then an environmental historian. And, uh, uh, you know, I just said the Civil War is one of those topics that I had had never really investigated, uh, odd as that may sound, I mean, other than preparing lectures for class. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but I think now that uh, having, having dabbled in it a little bit, it's probably where every Southern historian ends up sooner or later. Um, well, let me, you know, let me ask you about in, being an environmental historian. That's What does that entail? Do, I mean, a listener knows Civil War, Colonial they know what that means. What does an environmental historian look at? Well, good good question. Um, the sort of fundamental premise of environmental history is that um, one cannot understand uh, human actions or what people do uh, apart from the natural world or apart from the material world of which they're a part uh, at the time. And uh, that's that's a kind of a technical definition for my students. I always tell them it's history with the plants and animals and the weather and the soil left in and not left so, out as it normally is. <laughs> I mean, that really struck me as I was reading this. The, the, this book gives us a sort of chronological you know, thumbnail sketch of, of what's happening in the war and talks about some of the major campaigns which listeners to this show will already be familiar with, but what it adds is, is just those things you, you said. You have an interesting structure. Uh, you know, there's a chapter on the the 
microbial environment, the disease factors, chapter on weather, chapter on food, and so on. But you also tie them in and make them chronological. So the chapter on disease focuses on the early part of the war, even though disease ran rampant throughout the war. Uh, how, How did that structure come to be? Well, that's a that's a really good question too. Um, we I had planned the book. It was just going to be um, when I was thinking about it, kind of on my own before I, you know I really started talking to Judkin about it. Um, I, I wanted it to be topical. I wanted to just be you know microbes, weather, food, animals, etc. And uh, when we got to talking about it and actually talking with our editor at UNC Press, he said, you know, it's the history of the war, and the, and the war is a human thing, and wars have a beginning and an end. And so it uh, sort of pulled us away from that and made us start thinking more about a kind of a linear narrative. And then we just kind of put our heads together and thought, well, where would these topics that we were going to work on fit best? And um, uh, disease or microbes is a good good example because the uh, that's very prominent at the beginning of the war when the musters begin and all these people come together and create a new disease environment. So that you know was an obvious choice for the first chapter, and then weather you know sort of follows on that. 1862 is a crazy weather year, so that made sense. Um, and then we just sort of followed it from that food, you know, after the, the sort of hard war policy came in and we just sort of looked for parallels between what we wanted to talk about and when that was particularly prominent in the war. And that was mostly Jenkins doing because I didn't know enough of the civil war history to know where they would fit. But, uh, well, I, I, you know, I, I sort of, I sort of had the topic ideas and he had where they would fit. So we, um, I, I think it worked put that really together. well. It, it gives a, a narrative flow to the book as well as topical and makes it entertaining to read as well as interesting. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll step away for a few seconds, have some messages, come back and talk about some of these factors in the environmental history of the Civil War, which is the name of the book by Judkin Browning and our guest tonight, Timothy Silver. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high energy, all access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Tim Silver. He's co-author, along with Judkin Browning, of An Environmental History of the Civil War, which, uh, as we learned in the first segment, environmental history is is still history, but with the plants and animals and soil and weather and food and all the other things around us, the natural world uh, left in. And one of those certainly is is disease, the microbial world. Tim, one of the things that struck me was not the the prevalence of disease, and that anyone reading the Civil War knows how many how deadly that was, but how some diseases didn't show up. Uh, you know, right. We know about uh, the Crimean War, Florence Nightingale, the British Army decimated by cholera. There wasn't much in the Civil War. Why, why was there so little of that particular disease? Well, uh, you know, we're not exactly sure is, is the answer to that, because certainly all the, all the elements were there, um, as they were in the, in the, uh, the war that you mentioned, the Crimean War. Mm-hmm. But... Um, uh, it uh, it seems to have been a case of where there had been some um, pretty severe eruptions of cholera around the world before that, and before the Civil War, right before. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to have not been prevalent during the war. And cholera is also what's called, a, some people call it a traveling disease that sort of jumps from one place to another. And uh, some of the thinking on that is that it may just not have had a taking off um, for the war years, it certainly was a problem afterward, um, and there was a you know a real uh, cholera outbreak after the war. But it's just one of those sort of odd things that you would expect to see in the Civil War, but you know that we didn't find. Now you did see a lot of uh, childhood diseases. You have a section on, on measles and how common that was, and I'm reading it as I'm sitting inside basically quarantining myself or, or, you know, locking myself down. I'm not going outside. I'm not even going to the grocery store this week. Uh, and just picturing these guys living cheek by jowl and infecting each other right and left. What a horrifying environment. But they didn't know that was, they didn't know that's why they were getting sick, did they? Well, measles was pretty well known uh, by the time the war started. It was pretty much a fact of life in northern cities, not so much in the in the more rural uh, areas of America, and particularly in the south. And they certainly knew what measles was, and they knew that it spread through contact. But um, oddly enough, measles, like uh, coronavirus, uh, can have, or like COVID-19, can have, uh, it, it, it can have a lot of symptoms that look like something else. And uh, measles is not always readily identifiable, and it can certainly be passed on before you show the sort of telltale rash. And uh, that's frequently what happens. People will get sick, you know, with uh, sort of uh, bloodshot eyes and fever, 
etc. And before the rash appeared, they would infect other people. Once it appeared, you could quarantine them. But um, usually that came too late. And, uh, you know, there was nothing to do but just wait out the measles ep- uh, epidemic. Just let it run through, run its course, and then, you know, go on about your business. Um, yes. But it was it was terrible. And measles can kill you. You know, we think of it as sort of a, you know, a quick childhood disease, but um, it can kill. Well, the uh, I'm dating myself here by admitting I remember having measles in fourth grade and missing school mm-hmm. for a week. And but my children never had it. They were vaccinated. And uh, uh, today's students don't have that memory. But it was, well, I guess we have the, the anti-vaccination movement. That's a story for a different show, not Civil War Talk Radio. But the, uh, the, the idea that, that they knew about this, they knew it made people sick. But as you say, in the South where they had more, more sparse population, it just didn't get passed around as fast. There were other contagious diseases, uh, not contagious, but, but diseases that spread through other vectors, I should say. Uh, malaria was one you, you write about. It was very interesting to read about how uh, uh, Benjamin Butler actually cleans up New Orleans and, and uh, almost eradicates the disease accidentally. Yeah, that was uh, that was actually yellow fever, which is... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, yellow, that's also- right, yeah. Yeah, also a, a mosquito-borne disease, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, usually a, a lot nastier than even malaria. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, uh, of course, Butler didn't know what he was doing. I mean, he didn't, at that time, almost right. everybody had a sort of miasmatic theory of disease of, of some form or another. It was bad air or whatever. Um, but uh, one of the things that Butler did do was he cleaned up the city and he kept, uh, ships, anybody who, any ship that reported a case of yellow fever, he kept them out of New Orleans. And so uh, almost, you know, by accident, that was a highly effective uh, policy because he was able to clean up the mosquito breeding sites um, quite accidentally. You know, he didn't know mosquitoes caused this or mosquitoes carried the virus that caused it. And, um, and so he was really quite successful. And uh, there's a great cartoon that we have it in the book of yes. uh, from Harper's <laughs> Weekly of him, you know, showing up and Lincoln's looking at him and Butler's got the soap and the broom and everything. So it was really, really quite effective. Yeah. So the the lack of understanding of what's going on is certainly a thread that runs through the chapter on disease that they they, they did their best to combat it, but really didn't know the meaning of it. Another thing that they didn't know and that, we still don't know exactly is how the weather works. A couple of weeks ago, uh, <laughs> Megan Kate Nelson was on this show talking about her, her book on the war in the far West. And right. uh, I read that the description of the column of union soldiers coming from California, marching to New Mexico. And suddenly there's this huge, huge rainstorm uh, and the desert is flooded and reading her book because it's about, the, the Civil War era, I thought, oh, well, that must happen once in a while. But your book makes it clear that does not happen very often. Uh, and in fact, there was a drought through most of the Civil War era. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, the climatologists who work on the topic, they um, they frequently refer to the period as the Great Civil War drought. 
and it went on for you know about ten years, really, from uh, 1855 to 1866, 67, somewhere along there. And uh, overall, it was a drought. But what happened in California was uh, what Californians these days call a, a pineapple express, which is a tropical um, system that that really turns into to sort of an atmospheric river. It really, it literally is a river in the sky, hmm. and uh, it can occur during periods of drought because of oscillations in the climate and subtle shifts in the in the Pacific currents, etc. And uh, if that happened um, in, uh, in in for that California campaign, and you know, it's just a just a torrent of rain uh, beginning in. Uh, uh, Christmas of, of 1861, I believe, and, and it kept going into 1862. And, uh, you know, there are pictures of the people in Sacramento during all this rain um, just, you know, rowing boats down the streets. It was so much of it. And, and it was really odd and uh, probably the worst one of those atmospheric rivers that we've ever had. But that was kind of a lot of fun during the book. This was sort of uh, delve into weather forecasting it. You know, read about uh, uh, La Nina and El Nino and all these things that affect weather. So um, that was that was kind of a lot of fun. <laughs> well, you know, I've like anyone who reads about Civil War campaigns, you, you know that weather affects things. You know that there was rain uh, on April sixth in the evening at Shiloh after the first day of fighting. You know that there was rain that flooded the Tennessee River and allowed Fort Henry to be captured because it was almost underwater. Uh, you know that there was rain in the spring of 1862 on the peninsula that slowed McClellan down. But not till reading this did I put that all together. It was rain. There was a lot of rain in the spring of 1862, an unusual amount throughout the country. And and th- that was not normal weather. No. And uh, that it occurred in the middle of the drought, you know, is, is also uh, fascinating. But a drought does not mean that it never rains. You know, mm-hmm. uh, a, a drought just usually means that there's lower than average rainfall. And as always tell students, the average is a human invention that's got nothing to do with nature. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't find an average day. Um, uh, and so what happened in, in 1862 is that the rain fell heavily at particular times. Uh, it fell on McClellan, you know, it fell on the uh, flood of the Tennessee River. But then right after that, it sort of reverted back to drought, and uh, then it was bad for crops and, and uh, that sort of thing as time went on. But uh, weather is one of those things that is just completely chaotic. I mean, even even now, and this is sort of a revelation to me, I mean, I guess I knew it, but um, even now, weather forecasts are not uh, good, but for maybe 36 hours under the best circumstances. And so it really introduces a kind of a chaotic element into history that I think um, historians have difficulty accounting for sometimes. You, you quote Clausewitz's uh, comments on the friction of war, and this is a perfect yeah. example, that, yeah. that you just don't know. You can't plan on the weather. Uh, you can't count on it to be anything. One thing, though, that you, you can say about the weather, not so much the weather but the climate, is that it was colder during the Civil War. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most of us have read accounts of soldiers having snowball fights in the winters in Virginia, and it doesn't snow that much nowadays to have snowball fights regularly in Virginia anymore. 
but there was actually a little ice age that was still underway at the time of the Civil War. Yeah, yeah, and that's a that's a long term climatic thing uh, that generally in the northern hemisphere tended toward cooler temperatures. And little ice age is kind of a misnomer. I mean, it wasn't an ice age, but cooler temperatures. Mm-hmm. And it was ending um, uh, as the Civil War was beginning, and we think that that uh, just made for a lot of unstable weather uh, at the time, which was another factor in all this. Um, today, when we talk about climate change, you know, we don't talk about uh, when, it, when there's a snowstorm, people start saying, well, there's no climate change, look how cold it is. But in these long-term climatic shifts, one of the things that can happen is weather can get really, really unstable. Uh, particularly as something like the Little Ice Age is coming to an end. And we, and uh, I think, anyway, that uh, that's what made for some of the crazy weather of 1862. Now, all the rain, of course, leads to mud. And again, here, you know, mud is mud, but you have a very interesting description of the mud on the Virginia Peninsula that, that the Union Army encountered. It's It's not, I guess, not all mud is equal. Can you talk about the mud there? Sure. Um, uh, this is, uh, it, it, it's really fascinating. Um, and your listeners and anybody uh, who looks at the Civil War will know that uh, McClellan and Lincoln weren't in agreement on the best way to attack Richmond and, and so forth. And uh, McClellan finally decided to, you know, come up the peninsula. Well, that took him right straight across a geologic uh, formation that geologists call the Norfolk formation. And it's a really odd sort of thing. The The formation itself was created you know, probably about two and a half million years ago, or began to be created about two and a half million years ago. And uh, the sediment underneath, or the sediment that, that overlays this formation is best described probably as a kind of a clayey sand. But on top of that, in the intervening era, um, there was another layer laid down that was more sandy, um, also had uh, um, <clears throat> other sort of uh, organic material in it. And so that when McClellan got there, the roads to him appeared sandy, they appeared firm. He figured, you know, we can we can make this happen, even with our heavy artillery and our horses and, and all the stuff we've got. Uh, but the other thing about the, the, uh, the Norfolk Formation particularly, is that when it rains hard and when that top layer of the sand and the organic material is compacted, there's a process in the clays that's technically called liquefaction. And what that means is that it turns into a constituency of something about like wet cement. Mm. And uh, in that sort of thing, any kind of artillery, horses, mules, just mired up. And... um, yeah, nobody was really sure what was going on. Although I did um, sort of pull a quote here, there was one, there was one person, uh, one Union artillery officer or artillery man, who uh, seemed to understand that he said the immense rains we've had all the spring, sinking directly through the sand and finding no outlet from the marl, have converted it into the consistency of soft mortar. And he said, so he hit it. You know, he may not understood all the geology behind it, but but he nailed it. And uh, and that's what happened, and that's why mules uh, drowned in it, and you know, wagons mired up, and you couldn't move on them, and so forth. I and mean, it wasn't just it was not your average mud, I guess is the best way to say that. 
No. So when we see the uh, the Army of the Potomac mired down there under McClellan or Burnside's mud march in uh, the beginning of 1863 outside of Fredericksburg, uh, it, it's tempting to think these guys are exaggerating in their letters home and their, their diaries. But in fact, geologically, this was a peculiarly difficult mud to get around in. And uh, again, it's one of the things I really enjoyed reading this. Uh, the rain and the drought also affected crops. We're going to take another short break and come back and talk about the problems this had for food in the Civil War. Uh, we may not touch on every chapter tonight because uh, that'll leave more for, for you listeners to go out and uh, read it for yourself. The book is called An Environmental History of the Civil War. The authors are Judkin Browning and our guest tonight, Timothy Silver. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Timothy Silver, co-author, along with Judkin Browning, of An Environmental History of the Civil War. Tim is an environmental historian. We've been talking about the remarkable interaction of Civil War armies and the natural world in ways that one doesn't always think about. Uh, For example, anyone who's read the Civil War knows about Vicksburg being starved out, uh, shortage of food has a lot to do with strategy. But uh, Tim, you guys write about the shortage of food at Sharpsburg, at uh, the Antietam battlefield after the battle, uh, that that had not crossed my radar before. Why did they run out of food after the battle at Antietam? 
Well, actually, that was a that was a fairly common uh, problem wherever these uh, sort of large pitched battles took place. You've got you've got to remember that um, whenever you moved these these armies of fifty sixty thousand people, it was sort of the equivalent of creating a, a city, an instant kind of city on a rural landscape like Antietam, and uh, those the armies have to be fed. And, uh, you know, the, an easy way to feed armies is to take what's there that civilians have, particularly in, you know, good farmland like around Sharpsburg. And uh, as soon as the, the battle was over, um, you know, the people had left uh, Sharpsburg and left the region, the civilians. When they came back, they discovered that the armies had just moved in and taken their food. And uh, there are all sorts of great stories that we get to in the book about you know people coming home and finding that the uh, Union Army had slaughtered a bunch of chickens in their kitchen and mm. were killing their livestock and and so on and, and so forth. And then you just throw in the the devastation of the war itself. And Antietam's a good place to see that. Everybody knows about the cornfield you know, that was mm-hmm. um, torn apart. You throw that in, and so when the armies finally moved on, they just left uh, a kind of an ecological wasteland uh, in their wake. And and it happened not just there. I mean, it happened at a a lot of uh, sites where there were major battles. And you also had problems of um, waste disposal. You know, you drop 50,000 people down in a concentrated area. There are problems with waste disposal, sewage. Um, you know, disposing of animal remains. I mean, you name it. It's it, it literally is like an instant city. And oftentimes these uh, uh, these battles, uh, by the time the armies got there, there were more people there than in any southern city at the time. So it was, you know, just just quite a human impact. And and not just human, but animal impact. You have a, a, a yeah. chapter on that. You know, McClellan has 47,000 horses with him, along with twice that number yes. of, of people. The uh, And horses are big. They they eat a lot, and they defecate a lot. Yes. So uh, this, this book has one of the higher proportions of I-didn't-know-that moments to pages turned of, of any book I've read in a while. Uh, the the Geeseboro Depot, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, yeah, uh, right. the Union the Union Cavalry Remount Depot took in 170,000 cavalry horses over the course of the year uh, of the war. Yeah. That's so there was this huge flow of, of horsepower into the armies, and then of course they die, uh, and you have to do something with them. Um, this, uh, listeners, if this is the time to put down your snacks uh, if you're listening and eating at the same time. Because i got to ask, uh, when these horses die, uh, what do you do with them? Well, um, then as now, there are basically three things you can do with a dead horse. You can burn it, which <laughs> they did, and uh, particularly at places like Gettysburg and Antietam and even places like Seven Pines, they would uh, heap um at limbs or some sort of fuel on top of the horse, douse it with lamp oil, a dead horse, and uh, set on fire. Uh, so you can burn it, you can bury it, which nobody had time for. Um, and now if you want to bury a horse, you need a backhoe or something to, to do it. Or you can just leave it. <laughs> and that was far more common, of just leaving the carcasses of the horses and, uh, and mules where they died. 
And uh, sometimes, of course, uh, shooting them to put them out of the misery if they were badly wounded and just you know, leave them where they were, which then triggers a whole bunch of other ecological things, you know, with uh, blowflies and maggots and decomposition and um, uh, that sort of thing. So it's really quite a problem. And you're talking about a 2,000, uh, you know, a 1,000 to 2,000 pound animal there that has to be disposed of. So it's really, really quite a difficult thing. Well, you you open with an anecdote of uh, the widow Lester, whose house is Meade's headquarters on the Gettysburg battlefield. And if you've mm-hmm. been there, you know, listeners, you know it's a tiny little house. Uh, yeah. And when 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 the Union leaves, the Army leaves, uh, she comes back, and she's got her house back, but she's got was it seventeen dead horses in her yard? I mean, she couldn't dig right. a grave for one of them in in six months. What's she going to do with seventeen no. dead horses? Uh, yeah, even yeah, and and that that raises a, a really interesting point. You know, like everything else in um, uh, America, uh, people went into the business of disposing of these things, and there were uh, mm. actual businesses, firms, uh, a lot of them located in New York, who would then come to the battlefields and dispose of these horses. Uh, we don't really know if that's what happened with Lydia Leister. She contracted with one of these firms, but. We uh, or which one she contracted with, but we do know that somebody came and disposed of the horses and then ground the bones up to be used as fertilizer, and she got something over two dollars and small amount of money for the dead horses and her inconvenience. Um, but that, that incident really illustrates how difficult it was to get rid of a dead horse. Jumping ahead to uh, you have a chapter on the problems with disposing of human remains. And yes. and you mentioned adver- you know, capitalism will find uh, somebody will will do anything for a profit. Uh, the description of the people who tried to sell products uh, uh, that would bring your your dead relative home uh, in a tolerable condition. I get, I don't really know how to phrase it. Um, uh, and they advertise these services. You have, you have an ad printed in the book. Uh, and you describe someone who actually, an embalmer, who put dead bodies in his window, uh, yeah, to to attract attention. That that seemed a little far, a little crossing the line, perhaps. Yeah, well, not just not just any windows. These were in uh, the affluent D.C. suburbs, Georgetown, you know, et cetera, where you just sort of have examples of his work. And we mentioned one particular casket that caught my attention in Scientific American. There was an ad for it that had. Uh, it was very elaborate. It had an expanding valve that was supposed to keep the the smell from escaping uh, into the outer air. And uh, according to the to the person who built it, you know, there was no odor, no odor um, that would come out of this thing. And it had a glass plate at one end, so you could see the face of the deceased. So there were all kinds of kind of interesting ways um, for. Whenever a soldier died, and one of the things environmental historians uh, talk about, maybe it's a little bit macabre, but um, that's the point at death when humans really sort of, you get the idea and you can really see them become part of the natural world. Hmm. And, of course, the purpose of embalming or uh, these fancy caskets was to stop that decay and decomposition from happening until a person could have a decent uh, burial. And there were all kinds of ways of doing that, some of them quite ingenious. Now, a person could also become part of the natural world even before they die. 
uh, if they've been wounded. Yeah. And and uh, again, listeners, don't pick those snacks up. <laughs> don't don't start eating anything. Uh, you describe the phenomenon I had not read about before among the wounded at Shiloh, called Angel's Glow, where men's wounds were apparently glowing in the dark. What was that about? Yeah, and that that is a, a phenomenon that lots of people have tried to explain, and. Um, we we sort of suggest that you know nobody really knows where it came from, but apparently those that were left on some of those that were left on the battlefield at night um, had these wounds that appeared illuminated, and we think that perhaps uh, that came from a combination of uh, bacteria and nematodes, which are tiny little um, worms that live in the soil, and uh, these bacteria. Uh, luminesce, they glow. Mm-hmm. And normally that might not have been visible to anybody because they don't do well uh, at the regular human body temperature. They don't survive long enough to glow. Um, but at Shiloh, with the rain and the cold and this prolonged exposure, it seemed to bring on a kind of mild hypothermia um, that lowered the body temperature just enough to allow those helpful bacteria uh, to enter the wounds and, and glow. And so, you know, once they once they got off the battlefield, they noticed that those wounds seemed to heal quicker, and that's probably because those bioluminescent bacteria um, aided the healing process. And you described that uh, in other cases where uh, various biological material, maggots in particular, uh, would actually help wounds to to heal faster, and that even today that's actually used as a technique on occasion. But you described how this was tested in, in what you describe as a semi-controlled experiment uh, at Chattanooga. Could you talk about that? Yeah, at uh, at, at Chattanooga, the uh, the Union doctors who were much better equipped. Um, at the time, and had a lot more access, a lot better access to medical supplies. They would clean the maggots out of their out of their wounded, and then bandage them up, and you know, do what do what would normally they would normally do. Um, the Confederate doctors, uh, at first, they they had that sort of same revulsion to watching a wound crawling with maggots, but they didn't have the supplies to do anything about it, and so they didn't. And then. Uh, uh, Pretty soon, though, the Confederate surgeons who were tending their wounded found themselves uh, found their men doing better, even though they themselves didn't have the the medical supplies. And so, it's sort of a controlled experiment in what doctors call uh, maggot debridement theory, which means the maggots will eat away for reasons still unclear at some of the dead tissue, and they take that out, and that's healthy for the wound. And so there was kind of a controlled uh, experiment, and uh, some doctors uh, used it after the war. Some still use it, although it's not very common. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we we have just a few minutes left. I want to ask uh, about when people think of the environment, they they tend to think of nature around us, uh, natural settings. And uh, one of the most famous one of those in the Civil War is, of course, the wilderness in Virginia. Yes. Uh, but the wilderness is not really a wilderness. It's, it's, it's actually a man-made environment. Can you talk about how it came to be? Yeah. Uh, 
Well, one of the things that we really try to get at in the book when we talk about terrain and, and uh, you know, what people call the lay of the land is that the, the land as it appeared in the Civil War was the product of a long uh, period of human habitation. And the area that called the wilderness, the timber there had largely been cut for iron furnaces um, years before the battle. And so what you have there is a sort of a scrub forest, uh, mostly sprouting from stumps. And that makes it very dense, very thick. And, uh, of course, people know what happened there. Woods caught on fire and, um, you know, led to, <clears throat> led to all sorts of problems. And, uh, but it was not uh, really a wilderness by any stretch of the imagination. It was land that had been thoroughly farmed, first of all, and then cut over for wood for iron furnaces. Um, so it was as much a product of human action as of nature's action. Uh, there, there are so many interesting details throughout this. Um, the description of the importance of salt in the Civil War, uh, which is partly necessary for preserving uh, beef and pork. And there's a, a section on why pigs make the best uh, meat sources uh, for an army in the Civil War. Uh, there, none of which, we're near the end of our time. I wish we could talk about all of this. Was there anything that 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 we haven't talked about that that just leaps out at you that uh, uh, well, before we go? One of the things, yeah, one of the things we tried to do was to to look at the Civil War as an environmental event or as a biotic or biological event, mm-hmm. and um, and and also as an event that's important to the environmental history of uh, of the United States, and uh, we we sort of uncovered a kind of environmental legacy that a lot of things came out of the war that um, changed the way Americans thought about the environment and interacted with it. It's probably no accident that uh, the area that became Yosemite National Park is first set aside in 1864, you know, right in the middle of the Overland Campaign, some of the brutal, most brutal fighting. Um, the idea being that the West was still pristine and could be preserved, and meanwhile there had been this cataclysm back East, and um, some historians have even drawn parallels between uh, uh, timber that had been shattered by gunfire and the limbs on uh, human beings that had been blown away by gunfire, and in the West, you still had an environment that, that seemed pristine. So it's possible that even something like the National Parks owe their existence to the Civil War. It's no accident that Grant's president when Yellowstone becomes a national park. At least we don't think so. And, and, uh, then, and there are other things. Veterinary medicine, you know, we could we could go on about things that come out of the war, the National Weather Service. I mean, there's a whole sort of environmental legacy of the war that, uh, that we think is important and maybe somewhat overlooked. Well, I think there's there's so much that has been overlooked, and, and as you read this book, you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, there's no one, no one's put it down before. So, listeners, uh, you you will really enjoy this book. As I said it's 200 pages of text, and thus a very high ratio of I didn't know that to uh, to number of pages. Again, the title of the book: An Environmental History of the Civil War. The authors are Judkin Browning and Timothy Silver. Tim has been our guest tonight. Tim, thanks so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, thank you. Thank you for letting me uh, letting me come on. It's been fun, and 
you know, I'm not a Civil War historian, but sometimes I play one. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, very successfully here, I will say. So thank you again. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.